Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi folks, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Here we aim to give you information on your health to aid you in your wellness journey. Today we will explore hormones. What are they? How can we optimize them to keep us on our path to good health? Our hormones work together as a symphony, I'm told. Each affects the other and together they can make beautiful music. Men go through andropause. Women go through menopause. What happens when we approach these times? Do they have to be problematic? Today, our guest, Dr. Anna Kabeka, who wrote The Hormone Fix, will help discuss, they'll pull these concepts together and look at lifestyle and nutrition and things we can do to optimize our wellness. Now, Dr. Anna Kabeka is an internationally acclaimed menopause and sexual health expert. She's a global speaker and pioneering promoter of women's health. She is Emory University trained and triple board certified in gynecology and obstetrics, integrative medicine, and anti-aging and regenerative medicine. And of course, she's the author of The Hormone Fix, a diet and holistic lifestyle program for menopausal women. Her areas of specialty include bioidentical hormone treatments and natural hormone balancing strategies. She's received extensive notoriety for her virtual transformation programs, including Women's Restorative Health, Sexual CPR, and Magic Menopause. She created the successful and popular alkaline superfoods drink, Mighty Maca Plus, and a top-selling rejuvenating feminine vulvar cream for women called Joba. In her spare time, she hosts a highly regarded series, Couch Talk, featuring compelling podcasts focused on a variety of important health and wellness topics. She was named 2018 Innovator of the Year by Mindshare, the number one conference for health and wellness influencers. She's also honored with the prestigious 2017 Alan P. Mintz Award, presented annually at the Age Management Medicine Group. She has uh, reached hundreds and thousands of women around the globe, inspiring them to reclaim their optimal health and realize they can journey through menopause and find more purpose and pleasure than they ever dreamed possible. She balances her passion for women's health with faith, grace, and skill while raising her four daughters and leading the nonprofit foundation she created in the honor of her son, Garrett B. B. Bivens, who unfortunately died as a toddler. And here she is. Welcome, Dr. Anna. Oh, thank you for having me, Dr. Downs. It's great to be here with you. Okay. Well, um, so let's touch on um, the hormones and what they are and how they change as we go through, as men approach andropause and women approach menopause. Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, You know, first of all, hormones, it's interesting because we talk a lot about hormones, but what I recognize is not only do we really not understand them, but we're just beginning to scratch the surface of being able to manage them. And so, so many of us are confused about what they're doing, 
let alone how to fix them when it comes to our body. So hormones are generally described as chemical messengers, right? But they're also energetic messengers. That's why it's so difficult to really get a handle on measuring them. And as we age, our hormones naturally decline. For both men and women, DHEA, our DHEA one of our adrenal hormones, is responsible also for the production of estrogen and testosterone further down the line. But it is peaked at our, in our mid-20s, mid-20s to late-20s in both men and women, our DHEA levels peak, and then they gradually decline. And as well with testosterone in women, our progesterone levels peak around age um, 35, we start to see, 35 to 40, we start to get a decline in them because predominantly we produce progesterone in the second half of our menstrual cycle. So if we've had a hysterectomy, a lot of our progesterone, and if we've had our ovaries removed, a lot of our progesterone is being removed right there. So that's an important piece of the puzzle for so many women who have had hysterectomies. But men and women both need progesterone, and it's part of our natural like mother hormone to help with brain health, bone health, and you know, rebuilding and resilience. So, so as we start to see that decline in our you know, mid to late 30s with progesterone, estrogen starts to shift in our 40s typically with some swinging levels of estrogen, which commonly we experience as hot flashes, irritability, mood swings, some irregular cycles. All of that comes into play. And, and testosterone for women and men, it's a gradual more, much more gradual decline, but certainly in the perimenopause because testosterone is produced by the ovaries in women and also by the testes in men as well as the adrenal glands in both men and women. And so with stress and, um, you know, toxin, toxic burden, our reproductive hormones are suffering. So we're seeing a lot of perimenopausal and you know, hormonal symptoms of both men and women a lot earlier than we did decades ago. Well, before we get into these symptoms, why don't you tell us how you got interested in this and tell us a little bit about your own journey? Well, you know, my journey was out of necessity. I trained at, um, I trained at Emory, as you said, as a gynecologist and obstetrician. I came to a small town in southeast Georgia because I was a National Health Service Corps scholar, so I had a payback period. And I initially thought, well, I can live anywhere for three years, right? I've now been there 20 years. And um, part of my career in, as a solo gynecologist and obstetrician was to really find creative ways to help my clients, especially those in rural Georgia, which didn't have the funds or, or access to many of the standard of care options. And so from that experience and also from my personal experience with my mom and who struggled with heart disease from an early age, from 52, she was requiring cardiac bypass surgery and you know, had developed diabetes in her 30s and really struggled in and out of the doctor's offices for, for years and, and passed away at age 67. I was a resident at Emory when she passed, passed away, Susan, and so it made me think, well, what was the underlying issues that caused these problems to begin with? Because at the time of her death, she was on 11 medications. And no two of those medications were ever studied together in the human body. And so that really started my questioning. And then when I was 38, I went through an early menopause post-traumatically, as you mentioned, with the traumatic accident of my son's death. And that was traumatizing. And so that put me into post-traumatic stress, into complete 
you know, in early menopause and complete, I was told I was completely irreversibly infertile. That took me on a journey around the world looking for answers. And as I healed my body, you know, I was able to reverse men early menopause, become pregnant, have a baby at age 41. And, you know, and now here I am 12 years later telling the story and, and, and writing the book to give and empower, you know, every woman and man to take back control of their health, to become their best physician and discern what's working for them and what's not in the most natural ways possible. So certainly I'm an advocate for natural, low-dose, bioidentical hormones as needed with the light, but it takes more than hormones to fix our hormones. Wow, uh, that's certainly in line with what we want in the show. We want to get mm-hmm. this information out so we can become well um, naturally if possible. Okay, so as women approach menopause, what kind of symptoms do they come into your office with? What complaints do they come in with? Yeah, well, so many so many of the complaints are definitely hormone-related. I would say it's, it's three issues. It's hormone imbalance, it's inflammation, and, and it's adrenal dysregulation because stress is playing havoc on our bodies. So those three aspects come into play, and the symptoms they come in with typically is are anxiety, depression, uh, irregular cycles, hot flashes, mood swings, weight gain, but even worse, weight loss resistance, can't get the weight off. And so many of my patients would tell me, Dr. Anna, I'm gaining 5, 10, 20 pounds, and I'm not doing anything different. Well, I mean, honestly, until it happened to me, I really didn't believe them. But then it was me gaining 5, 10, 20 pounds and not doing anything different. And so that was that was really eye-opening. But not only that, there's brain fog. And um, you know, what's very interesting is that one of the things that I've recognized as I learned and incorporated my keto green way and lifestyle into, into my own life and benefited from the increased mental clarity, the lifting of the brain fog, that truly I call it energized enlightenment, what a difference it makes on our lives. But as estrogen and progesterone decline, well, glucose utilization, we're going to use glucose for fuel in the brain or ketones. And glucose utilization in the brain is an estrogen-dependent phenomenon. So no wonder we're getting an increase in neurologic symptoms as we're aging. And I call this a period of neurologic vulnerability. And we really have to be aggressive about managing our health during this time as well as our hormones. Well, I mean, brain fog, doesn't that mean you've got a severe insult to the brain, which uh, can generate inflammation through the microglia, et cetera, in the brain, and that could lead down to a wrong path? Yeah, absolutely, right? Compromised microcirculation from decreased nitric oxide production, as well as, you know, the protective benefit of progesterone along the myelin sheaths as well. So that we can lead us to dementia, it can lead us to Alzheimer's if we don't incorporate the lifestyle and nutritional modalities that make us optimize fuel for the brain. So this is something the audience needs to pay attention to. When we have brain fog and our brain just doesn't seem to be working right, that can be due as Anna says, due to decreasing estrogen and hormone imbalance, but it could also be due to toxins, something we eat. Mm-hmm. So when we notice that, we know that we're insulting our brain, our blood-brain barrier is likely to be open, and we're very vulnerable to future problems down the road. So when we have brain fog, we have to pay attention to it and not just say, oh, bad day. 
or, or so true. I mean, we think, okay, I'm just getting older. I forgot my keys in my room. This is a sign of, you know, some timers will joke. That's not a joke. Like, let's start giving, let's start optimizing energy for the brain. And that's just an early sign that we've got to make a difference here, that we have to be aggressive about making changes in our lives so that we can live out the rest of our lives, right? The second half of our lives, let's say, with such quality and clarity. Like, you truly exhibit, Susan. You are a role model for us for this. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, so tell us about the different hormones, estrogen, progesterone, cortisol, DHEA, et cetera, what do they do and how do they change throughout the lifestyle for men and women? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that's changing as, as we're getting older and these hormones are declining is, you know, their, their role on our organs. Like we talked about the brain, estrogen and progesterone are neuroprotective hormones. So they help and improve our memory and our clarity and our moods. And, and that's true for men and women as well as testosterone. And as much as I would love to say estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, even DHA are our major hormones, they're not. They're minor in comparison to our major hormones, which we've got to get under control, and that's insulin, cortisol, and oxytocin, the three most powerful hormones in our body. And I always call oxytocin the crowning hormone. I like to look at it this way. So you can imagine in university, and you have the students. Those would be like progesterone, estrogen, DHA, testosterone. They're all uniquely qualified and have their own roles, right? But they work together in so many ways. And then the instructors, the professors at the head of the classroom would be insulin and cortisol, guiding, directing, informing, reacting, right? And then the dean of the entire school is oxytocin. And oxytocin is that crowning hormone, and it's the reason we're there, right? It's the reason we're here, to give us that peace, that love, that connection, the happiness that really keeps us all together. So I consider those the major hormones. And as I started working with hormone replacement and recognizing that it takes more than hormones to fix our hormones, because, you know, again, we know that if, if that wasn't the case, everyone on thyroid hormone would be thin, right? And the same thing, everyone on testosterone would have a great libido. Well, we know that's not the case, so what else is going on here? And that's really where we have to get control of these other hormones. So tell us about oxytocin, the hugging hormone. Mm-hmm. The hormone of love, bonding, and connection. And oxytocin is has been, you know, underrepresented in our field of medicine. As an obstetrician, we're very comfortable with oxytocin because we give pitocin, which is oxytocin, during labor. And this is really becoming an area of high controversy because we've always felt high-dose pitocin is fine, no issues. Now it's starting to, now as the connections have been made with autism and an oxytocin deficiency, we're looking at this multi-laying effect of obstetric intervention such as, you know, high-dose pitocin, cesarean section, antibiotics, you know, prior to labor and delivery, all of those are kind of creating a perfect storm or creating, again, neurologic vulnerability. So it's interesting to see this. And I was starting to wonder about it because I was looking at this increase in in autism and I treated patients in my practice using um, oxytocin if they had autism and saw significant benefits or if they were on the spectrum and also those of us who have had experiences with post-traumatic stress. So, you know, creating more oxytocin behaviors in our lifestyle is very critical, but for a temporary time period at least, using oxytocin 
can be beneficial as well. And so what I saw was this, you know, this, this smiling, this awakening, this connecting in individuals. So I looked at the research because I wondered if high-dose pitocin could have any effect on this because there's something that happens when we have trauma. When we experience trauma, we get an outpouring, certainly of progesterone initially and, and oxytocin, that's bonding, and cortisol is out there. And cortisol is like searing our nerve endings, right? Especially in, in trauma, there's a... I, I'm not exactly what happens for sure. Like, is there a, a damage to the receptor sites or a damage in the production of oxytocin? We don't know yet, but there's certainly a... Um, cortisol, oxytocin disconnect post-trauma and chronic stress as well as in um, with autism. Yeah, I um, was one of the authors of a peer-reviewed article on autism, and to me, autism is the final common pathway of everything that can go wrong. We've had Catherine Reed on the show who reversed her child's severe autism, reversed the symptoms, that is, to the fact that she's most social. So it's multifactorial, and some of the research is indicating that if you give uh, the children oxytocin nasally through the nose, that they can become a little more social. But that also gets me to another topic on the other end of the lifespan is Alzheimer's, because Dr. Dale Bredesen was reversing the cognitive symptoms, and similar approach. She looks at many contributory factors. He has several uh, categories of Alzheimer's. One of them is toxins, which we you know covered recently. Um, another one is um, metabolic, meaning insulin and blood sugars, which Anna will talk about shortly. And another one is when the ca- uh, catabolic tearing down of the uh, body is greater than building up. But there's several different subtypes of autism, and he looks at it as a roof with 38 holes, fixes the greater contributor, and he's bringing people back with cognitive decline. What this points to, as well as the autism, that all these factors are multifactorial and that through lifestyle changes, we can get back on a better path. So it's both extremes of the lifestyle. And autism, I mean, Stephanie Seneff predicts it's going to be one out of two children, and now we're, um, you know, one out of 38 boys. I mean, Korea's approximately, Korea's always been, has been that level, South Korea, for several years. So um, these are, diseases, to me, are indicative that we're doing something wrong, mo- most of it environmental, because genetics is a small part. So we need to look at our health. And it's not just going to a doctor to take the pills and mask the symptoms. So all these are multifactorial, and hormones play a big part. So, Anna, tell me about insulin, because that's a really big one. Yeah, and so when in working to create my program that I talk about in the Hormone Fix, I talk about the keto green way and why you know, we, we talk about our brain using fuel, we're going to use glucose for fuel or ketones for fuel. And we'll use ketones for fuel definitely in the perimenopause and menopause much more efficiently. I will say glucose is like to gasoline as ketones are to jet fuel. And so one thing getting into ketosis does through, you know, lifestyle factors predominantly as well as a healthy, nutritious, healthy fat, healthy protein, low-carbohydrate program is create insulin sensitivity. And so the more insulin sensitive we are, the more our cells listen 
to the instructor, you know, instructing glucose to be utilized or stored, right? And so insulin, as insulin, as we become more insulin resistant, we know that we have higher risk of dementia, of diabetes, of metabolic syndrome, heart disease, cancer, and the list goes on. So everything we can do in our life to empower, become more insulin sensitive is is powerful. And yesterday when I was lecturing at the Silicon Valley Health Institute recently, I, I asked the audience, how many of you have checked your hemoglobin A1C? And less than half, everyone needs to know what your hemoglobin A1C number is. And we need to follow it regularly till we get it below 5.3. And I think that's really important thing to say because we, we know how much we weigh on the scale, right? That that question, there was 95 or 99%. Everyone raised their hands. But for hemoglobin A1C, which is even more important to know, less than, less than you know, a third of the room or a quarter of the room knew that, knew their number. And that's a powerful number to know. And the better we can manage our glucose control or glycemic control within our body, the healthier we'll be brain-wise as well. Insulin works on all other hormones. So it's instructing progesterone. It will relate back to affecting cortisol, estrogen, and testosterone. So we know that these major hormones, insulin, cortisol, and, of course, oxytocin, have a intricate interplay with our other hormones. Yeah, we loved your le- lecture last night, so thank you very much for that at the Silicon Valley Health Institute. Um, yeah, so just to tie things together um, for the audience, I mean, blood sugar is very important, and when our blood sugars go, and insulin is the hormone that takes the uh, blood sugar out of the blood and puts it into fat, muscles, wherever it's supposed to go. And if we get too much sugar, and if we, you know, if we eat too much sugar and our blood sugars go up too high, the insulin wears out and it's not as effective, and that's called insulin resistance. And that can certainly lead to diabetes 2 or, you know, autoimmune conditions can also lead to diabetes 1 and 1.5 and perhaps play a part in diabetes 2. So it's important to regulate our sugar and our insulin. And I heard you say fats because fats sounds like a very important part of our diet as opposed to uh, way back when the sugar industry figured out that if you blame fat as a culprit, people are going to buy more sugar. So in the 70s, I think under Nixon, they started this, oh, fat is the bad guy. You can't eat fat. You know, so what happened? We ate more sugar and more, you know, to make things taste better. But fat's very important. I understand, like, if you just eat meat on the keto diet, and that, that's not yours, yours is the keto green diet, but if you just eat meat, that'll still raise your insulin unless you eat fat. So it's important to eat healthy fats. And what are the healthy fats? Yeah, so definitely we want to get healthy fats from, like, olive oil, nuts and seeds, avocados, salmon, you know, so really, really nutritious sources. Okay. Okay, so tell us a little more about your keto green diet. Yeah, and so when I was, as I hit, I would say at my second menopause at age 48, um, I was experiencing what so many of my patients experienced, that 5, 10, 20-pound weight gain, right, without doing anything different. So I wanted to really do everything I could to restrict it. So, of course, I knew about the ketogenic diet. I have a child with seizure disorder as well as work with many patients with neurologic issues and putting them on the ketogenic diet. But anytime I put a patient in the perimenopause on it, they would say, I hit a, I'm hitting a wall, I get irritable, I don't like how I feel. And then for myself, what I experienced, Susan, was like what I like to call going keto crazy. 
I mean, seriously, irritable, moody, and you can't raise a family that way. I was a single mom trying to <laughs> run a business and raise a family, and that just that was not the not the way I wanted to live. And so I wanted to understand what was happening. So I recognized just by testing your nerve pH that was very, very acidic. So I started putting in what I call the green approach or the alkaline approach, alkaline foods and lifestyle factors, just like with ketosis. Getting into ketosis, more about healthy fats. There's intermittent fasting, stop snacking, so we become insulin sensitive and we really optimize it. So for me and, and patients that I work with, clients that I work with in my programs, that's the benefit of, of getting into ketogenesis and, and cycling in and out, right? But to cycle into ketogenesis. And the green, the alkalinizing factor, using low carbohydrate alkalinizers, so the microgreens, the broccoli sprouts, the um, kale, cauliflower, chard, beet greens, you know, high nutritious, low carbohydrate alkalinizers, rich in minerals to support phase one and phase two detoxification to support our body's natural elimination processes as well became really key. So the keto green approach really works to manage cortisol and manage insulin in, in, from a hormonal perspective with the dietary and lifestyle aspects that's in my keto green uh, diet and, and program. Well, that sounds pretty important. So how would you summarize the difference between a ketogenic diet? And we've had Dominic D'Agostino and Amy Berger and various people discuss the ketogenic diet. But how would you describe the different? so you can check them out on a radio show. So how would you just describe the difference between a keto green and just a plain keto diet? Yeah, well, first thing, you know, one thing is that, you know, we hear keto everywhere, but there's different ways to do keto. What's really working for us is important to figure out. And so I will say we have to test not gas. So for many like keto dieters, like we always hear the bacon butter or the carnivore keto. Now men can do that better somehow, but we also know statistics show that every longevity culture, every blue zone has a significant amount of plant-based foods. So with my keto green way, we're incorporating a high, you know, a high quality plant-based food, still keeping low on the carbohydrate basis and incorporating it into two to three meals per day, no snacking, and also the lifestyle factors like hydrating between meals, not with meals, you know, making sure that we're eating before 7 p.m. because we know that we'll excrete 50 to 70% more insulin if we eat later in the evening. And also for women, for hormonal control, breaking fast with a keto green breakfast. So like, you know, by 10 a.m. ideally for for healthy hormone stabilization throughout the day. And that's when I always tell patients, willpower is physiologic. When we start our day keto green, we have willpower through the rest of the day. And that's an important way to start. So with my, like, if we compare a classic keto, and you can think of um, some, you know, heavy in meats, heavy in fats, very low in the plant-based world, right, compared to mine, which you can imagine if we're having a four ounce or quarter of the plate look at it plate-wise, a quarter of the plate with protein. Imagine a bed of greens or alkalinizing vegetables using spices and herbs, which are alkalinizing and detoxing. So imagine sauteing some Swiss chard with onions, a couple tomatoes, adding in sesame seeds and, you know, copious amounts of olive oil and and that being a bit, and turmeric and spices that you love and enjoy, Himalayan sea salt, we want to get those minerals into our body and the fiber that's really critical. 
And so you've added in the protein, high-quality fat, and lots of greens. So those greens will give you fiber, fat, fiber, and protein. That makes such, that makes such sense because just eating protein, uh, that I think is going to be very hard in your body eventually, but it makes such sense to add the greens. We're coming to a break, and we'll be right back continuing on this topic. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Are you looking for a great movie to watch? Tired of swiping through hundreds of different channels hoping to see something that sparks your interest? Well, I have great news to share with you. Today, everyone has either cut the cord with their cable company or are thinking about it. I cut the cord more than five years ago, and I don't miss cable one bit. There are now so many money-saving options to cable TV. My favorite right now is Roku. There are literally thousands of wonderful channels for every type of viewing experience you can possibly imagine. But today, I wanted to tell you about two very special channels, Indie Rights Movies and Indie Rights Free Movies. You will find both of these channels in the Movies and TV section of the Channel Store on Roku. All the movies on the Indie Rights Free Movies channel are absolutely free for you to watch. You can browse through hundreds of movies organized in interesting groups. You can scan through quickly like top-rated films from Rotten Tomatoes, monster horror, country drama, dark comedies, crime docs, films directed by women, and social issue docs. You won't find categories like these on other popular streaming channels. Speaking of social issue docs, you might watch The Big Secret, The Big Secret is the latest work by Emmy Award-winning producer Alex Foss, directed by integrative physician Susan Downs. It's all about the influence big money has on your health and well-being. If you prefer to watch movies without ads, subscribe to Indie Rights Movies, available everywhere. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Wow, that's so interesting. We were just talking about the keto green diet, and it's important to add all these greens because just eating a load of protein and fats, healthy fats, you know, we need the minerals, we need the vitamins, so these vegetables and greens are so important. But you mentioned some very interesting points. Like you said, you shouldn't drink water with your meal, you should drink it like an hour and a half away from the meal so you can have the digestive enzymes, etc. So tell us about when to drink water and how much or what fluids. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like hydration is really important. We should break fast. Like in the morning when we get up, we should hydrate, right? We should really well hydrate, and that's a good time to drink alkaline water. Now, we, I always say, Susan might tell you, the free refills is a detriment to our country. It is a detriment to our health. And the reason is, we know basic chemistry, right? If we take a piece of meat and we pour acid on it, just like our stomach's designed to do from the, mount, you know, from the moment we start digesting or chewing, we're going to increase our stomach acid. But then we take that same piece of meat, pour acid, and pour 
you know, eight ounces of fluid on it, we've diluted the acid, right? So the time to drink is not with our meal. And I typically say, you know, the only thing we should, you know, we should be chewing so well that the saliva is dissolving our food by the time we, you know, by the time we swallow it, it's already well dissolved. And that's a really important lifestyle habit to get into for improving our quality of life. It's so important, especially as we get older and our digestive enzyme production has naturally decreased. We have to add those digestive aids when we're eating, such natural ways like adding ginger or bitter melon and um, apple cider vinegar. Things like that can help improve our digestion. But when we're, again, drinking with our meals, we're diluting that. So hence, that leads to you know, the number one reason people go to the emergency rooms in the United States is GI bleeds, right, or a consequence of antacids and anti-inflammatory medications. Well, it's last <laughs> season. <laughs> so it's pretty predominant reasons that really are crisis situations. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I really want to emphasize this point. It's so important to digest your food completely because if there's any protein that's not completely digested, and some people like Tom O'Brien would say we can't digest gluten, so it's always going to be a problem. But with those get into our blood system, that's kind of what generates a lot of, if not all, autoimmune diseases because these little undigested particles get into the bloodstream. Our body says, hey, you're a foreigner. We need to protect the body. So we mount a defense and go after it, creating all these antibodies. But then there's cross-mimicry that these antibodies will go after part of the body. For example, gluten genetically is very similar to the Purkinje balance cells in the brain, the cerebellum, the islet cells that make insulin in the pancreas, and the thyroid. So what happens? The, you, these, you get these antibodies that attack your thyroid. So a lot of people with Hashimoto's disease or you know, thyroid autoimmune disease, uh, they will also have uh, antibodies against gluten. You get something called glutenatoxia because it attacked your balance cells and people, you know, staggering around as if intoxicated, but take away the gluten and they get better. And the same thing with diabetes. There's people coming up with a new type of diabetes, which is diabetes 1.5, that you get the antibodies, it's called GAD65, going against the islet cells, you're making less insulin, so these skinny people who don't, shouldn't have any insulin resistance at all, and doctors are saying, what's going on here, end up on insulin fairly quickly. So it's very important to digest your food totally, and if that means chewing and drinking water with your meal and choosing your foods wisely, that's important. You can listen to the podcast of Ari Vajani and Tom O'Brien who discuss this more. And drugs, antacids, and analgesics, it's very interesting because antacids interfere with the whole process. We need the acid in our stomach. And last, mm-hmm. in our last podcast on biomedicine, I mean, uh, Dr. Tom mentioned that you need the fever. It's the best antibiotic as long as it doesn't get too high. And you just taking these analgesics get in the way. So it's, the digestion is very important, folks. So drinking fluids away from the meal is very important. Now, I hear another point that's very important. People are saying fasting really helps with the health, but who can fast for very long? But it generates all sorts of things, sirtuins and and stem cells and all sorts of healthy things, but who can fast? But there's this intermittent fasting, as Anna says, stop eating before 7 p.m., 
pick it up maybe 12, 14 hours later. And that's supposed to be very health-generating as well. So you did mention that as part of your program, correct? Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting is in in 2016 in, in JAMA Oncology, they published a research looking at breast cancer patients. And if they had fasted less than 12.5 hours, less than 13 hours between dinner and breakfast, they had a 30% increased risk of breast cancer recurrence compared to those who fasted longer, 13 hours or longer. That's huge information. So for my program, it's to work up our fasting muscle to 13 to 15 hours on a regular basis and then every, you know, periodically have an extended fast. And that is beneficial. And also for so many women, especially, and men, at night, getting up in the middle of the night to urinate, right? That's disturbing our sleep when we should be resting and repairing and working naturally. So ending that dinner meal early and not having more than four, you know, a cup of tea, four to eight ounces, you know, or so of fluid before you go to bed is also a really good way. That's kind of like a, a very light, intermittent, dry fast because so many women will get up in the middle of the night four or five times even to use the bathroom. And as we're getting older, that's a concern because that's when most falls happen as well. We have to hydrate well during the day. First thing when we wake up, let's hydrate really well. And then in between our meals, right? Not with our meals. And then stop eating earlier. You know, I, I like the I like the senior the senior plate specials. <laughs> Eat earlier and lighter and um and you know, take that time, take that opportunity to fast so your body's resting and repairing overnight and not digesting. And that's as well as not getting up in the middle of the night to your name. Mm-hmm. Another thing your listeners can look into is a Dr. Longo uh, looked into fasting mimicking diet. And if you do this a couple times per year at age 50, I think he said something like when you're 70, you're, I mean, your biological age is much, much younger, perhaps by decades. So that's something else that one can look into. Now, a question I have is about the Inuits that eat blubber and animal fat. So how do they thrive so well? Yeah, so it was so interesting because when I was looking at the ketogenic diet, and this is way back 2014, 2015, when I was hitting my second menopause, I was like, well, how, if I'm feeling miserable, certainly how would an Alaskan woman, you know, or from the Inuit tribes, I mean, how are they doing it? So I looked at their diet because I heard it's all fat, it's all blubber, right? And it's, but it's not. They drink bone broth. They drink, you know, fish bone broth, right? They're getting the minerals still. So traditionally, over the generations, they learned that that was an essential piece to keep them healthy, sane, and and energized. I read somewhere that they also eat the adrenal glands, which might have vitamin C. I might have that wrong, but eating various organ parts of the bodies of the animals probably contributes to uh, nutrients as well, I suspect. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. We used to eat, I mean, I grew up, my mom would make chicken livers, right? We would eat the hearts and, you know, and different, you know, all aspects of the animal, right? We used to do that. Traditionally, we did. So now we're not. So what do we take? We take adrenal supplements. We take thyroid supplements, right? We take hormone supplements because we're not getting them from, we're disregarding those sources that were necessary, that are necessary, Wow. I remember the chicken livers, the tongues, mm-hmm. oxtails, you know, hearts, all of that was on the plate. Liver mm-hmm. fairly often. Hmm. Things have changed. Yeah, and liver is so good for us, right? 
Yeah. As long as it's uh, organic and grass-fed and not full of insecticides, exactly. hormones, and antibiotics. Good point. <laughs> now, when, exactly. when people, now, when people are on the... I mean, your book describes your program fairly thoroughly, and it helps people who are listening to this now get a jump start on this and how to monitor it. So what tests do you recommend to monitor um, the progress? Well, definitely on a daily basis for just pennies a day, just checking urinary pH and ketones. So we use our keto pH urine test strips that look at both of those because pH tells us more than, you know, how what we've eaten. It tells us how we're managing our stress. It tells us so much. Urinary pH can be very, very helpful as a guide to optimize and individualize our nutritional and lifestyle program. So checking urine pH and ketones, very nice, easy way to do it. And also, like, get baseline markers. Get a hemoglobin A1C. Get a HF, highly sensitive C-reactive protein or cardio C-reactive protein. A straight CRP is not sensitive enough. Those are two key tests. And then third one that I recommend all my clients know is their vitamin D level, vitamin D25-hydroxy. And the fourth is the DHEAS because healthy DHEA levels are associated with higher resilience, healthy bones, healthy brain, all of those important factors that we really need to have you know, as, as we age. Very important. The hemoglobin actually, A1C is out of a measure of your average sugar level over the previous three months and the HSCRP measure of inflammation that, you know, you were saying last night that if your HSCRP starts going up, you better look for serious problems like that woman mm-hmm. who had cancer and, and then the test showed that this measure was over 100. So mm-hmm. it's important to monitor these. Absolutely. And the keto and the uh, acidic test or urine test, you take a strip and you measure your pee, right? Exactly. Just pee on a stick. Okay. Um, Now, cortisol, I hear, is behind a lot of uh, illnesses. So tell us about cortisol. So, yeah, cortisol, you know, is secreted at times of stress, right? The fight-or-flight response. So what we need to do, and that's why oxytocin is so powerful, oxytocin and cortisol naturally oppose each other. Typically, cortisol goes up, oxytocin goes down, or and oxytocin goes up, and cortisol goes down. So in my program, in the Hormone Fix, I also give the strategies for improving, you know, optimizing oxytocin and lowering cortisol. The more we can control cortisol, you know, from on a daily basis, the better, the healthier we are, right? Because cortisol is catabolic. It's breaking us down consistently. So we need to we need to manage that. And when we are stressed, and either everyday stress, post-traumatic stress, and even in cases where we've had adverse childhood experiences, this affects our circadian cycle, our cortisol management. And the dangerous cycle we get into is when we get burnt out. So when cortisol is up for so long, our paraventricular nucleus area in the brain will signal our a decrease in our cortisol production, kind of putting the brakes on it. And I think it's a discussion that goes kind of like this. The, you know, that brain center is saying, hey, cortisol, you're frying me out. I'm locking you up, been a bad boy, putting you in your room. And so you get this low cortisol. But when, again, oxytocin is suppressed at the same time when that happens. And so we experience emotions of depression, anxiety, isolation, uh, withdrawal from social interactions. And, and burnout, right? We stop feeling love. We stop feeling connected to others. We start 
stop enjoying the things that used to give us pleasure. We don't feel it. And and I heard that after I experienced it because I started asking patients, you know, well, what, have you had a traumatic event? Have you, you know, was there, a, was there an accident? What's going on? And I remember this gentleman, Marcus, he came to me. He had, he had heard about my work and, um, because, you know, it takes a strong guy to come to a gynecologist for help, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so he had been in a traumatic um, accident. He worked on the railroad, and he was in a traumatic accident. And so he goes, you know, I love my wife. I love my daughter. But I don't feel love for them anymore. And I heard, and I recognized that right away. That's the cortisol oxytocin disconnect. And I said, were you in an accident? And he, that's when he told me about the accident he was in. I'm like, well, between traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, no wonder he was feeling symptomatic. So certainly his testosterone hormone was low because, again, you know, we are in stress. Our reproductive hormones are not going to be produced, right? They are sacrificed. So recognizing that and understanding the root causes why makes a difference. So as I explained what he was happening and why he was feeling it, he it was like, oh my gosh, the guilt, the shame, the agony that he had for his experience, for what he was feeling, just went away from him. He could at least realize this was a cause and his physiology was affecting his emotions and his relationships. So as we work to increase the oxytocin activities and stress management and break that cycle of cortisol um, suppression, essentially, through like EMDR, you know, eye movement reprocessing and desensitization techniques or emotional freedom techniques and, you know, heart math, right? Increasing heart rate variability, creating some coherence, those skills help with cortisol balance, as well as increasing oxytocin activity. So things he loved to do to incorporate. People that make him laugh, shows that are funny, incorporating, playing with a pet, getting a pet or an animal, and getting outside in nature as much as possible. In, in, literally in three months, what he'd been struggling with for over five years, completely, completely resolved. And he could feel for the first time in years, which was which beautiful story because him, his wife, his daughter, you know, it, that cemented their relationship in an even stronger, more powerful way from the brink of divorce, right? Divorce and, and depression to connection, love, intimacy. Wow. So you've men- mentioned ways to increase oxytocin, hugging, massage, love, connection, laughter, higher purpose, being mindful, but aren't there a lot of things that we might not suspect that increase our cortisol? And as you say, there's an inverse relationship, oxytocin, hopefully, when it goes up, cortisol goes down and vice versa. But aren't there things like uh, inflammation and insulin resistance that increase the cortisol? What other things increase cortisol? Yeah, absolutely. Like hyperglycemia, inflammation, our body is constantly secreting cortisol to kind of put the flames out, right? Stress, chronic, you know, uh, perceived or real stress. Um, and decreased sleep, right? The, the more we sleep, the better cortisol management we have. So getting that seven to nine hours of sleep is really important. And relationships. You know, relationships can increase cortisol or decrease cortisol. Physical stress also. So if we are in an adrenal, if we are experiencing adrenal dysfunction, restorative exercises, qigong, yoga, things like that, as opposed to, you know, high-intensity intervals or endurance exercises, because 
we need to step back, put a pause, and take this time to rebuild. And what do you mean by adrenal dysfunction? So, like, we've heard the term adrenal fatigue, but because, like, this expression, and that's when we said, you know, okay, well, cortisol's low, your adrenals are just, it was the understanding that, well, your adrenals are just not putting out cortisol. Well, that's not the case. The paraventricular nucleus is really shutting down the production of cortisol, saying, okay, this is a feedback mechanism. You're frying me out. Let's decrease it. So sometimes it's because we have, you know, low cortisol during the day or it peaks at night, so we have the tired and wired phenomena. And so a a discordance, essentially, an imbalance, or out-of-sync cortisol circadian rhythm. So we should have a natural high cortisol in the morning that wakes us up, gives us energized. And for some people, the experience of waking up not feeling rested could be an early sign of adrenal dysfunction or adrenal dysregulation. It could be adrenal hypofunction or even adrenal hyperfunction. But when we wake up not feeling rested, that's an adrenal hypofunction. We're not having enough cortisol to wake us up so that we're clear, alert, you know, on on task for the day as we should be. And and for some, it's, you know, flat lines throughout the day. That's the burnout that I'd experienced. And um, for others, like, it's, it's low, low, low all day, and then all of a sudden wired in the evening when you should be resting. So you have a mismatch, right? Here you should be getting ready for bed, resting, you know, tired, get ready for sleep. And so in my book, too, I talk about this, lifestyle strategies we have to do to reset our circadian rhythm, like wake up, get sunrise into your eyes, no contacts, no glasses, get the light of the sunrise in that full spectrum light into our eyes and also sunset, allow that to trigger. And then if we definitely need to avoid EMS post-sunset, so the blue, we need to avoid blue lights from our computers and our smart devices come sunset. To help, yeah. So you're saying, uh, like, rhythm. like you're saying, uh, cortisol should surge in the morning, and you know, mm-hmm. and decrease at night so we can go to sleep because a surge of cortisol will wake us up. So if somebody's having insomnia and in the middle of the night, I kind of think, well, there must be a cortisol surge there, and it seems mm-hmm. to be a reverse relationship between cortisol and melatonin, which is what helps us sleep. Correct? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That 3 a.m. awakening, there's a, you know, again, a cortisol spike at that time, too. And whether it, you know, it can be many reasons, but we have to pay attention to that in order to suppress that so that we're not, you know, we're getting solid sleep. Well, uh, I would like to make one comment. I mean, there's a big move to decrease cortisol cholesterol, but cholesterol, only 20% of it comes from our diet, and if our cholesterol is too low, we're not making all these hormones. We're not making healthy cell walls. So rather than when you doctor pulls out the statin pad, you might want to ask why am I, not make, am I making too much cholesterol? It could be due with liver, toxins, etc. But we're winding down, folks. So tell us about bioidentical hormones. Uh, what would you suggest there? So one thing that I use very regularly is is bioidentical progesterone in the perimenopause time period because often it's this progesterone deficiency that's creating symptoms. And so this is really important. You know, one thing that so many women, if they've experienced hysterectomy, they're only given estrogen. And when I started using progesterone, not just for the uterus, right, progesterone's for the brain, for the, you know, breast, for metabolism, for good night's sleep, for mood so many good aspects of progesterone. So when I started prescribing it, 
in patients who have had a hysterectomy and, and a transdermal cream. We use our, our Pure Balance PPR. You can get prescribed oral bioidentical progesterone. There's a difference, only bioidenticals. But my patient, Susan, would come in and tell me, you know, Dr. Anna, I feel like a cloud has lifted. And over and over again, and I heard that through my years of practice. So progesterone is important whether you've had a hysterectomy or not for that neuroprotective benefit. We can use transdermal creams. There's, you know, many that are high quality that are over the counter now in a low dose. A little bit goes a long way. When we're menopausal, we can use it Monday through Friday, take the weekends off, you know, so that we constantly have a cycle, a good cushion of giving our body that, that very powerful ingredient, so progesterone. And another hormone that I regularly prescribe as well, recommend, is a transdermal um, DHEA or very low-dose oral. I mean, a little bit goes a long way. But DHEA, again, another precursor hormone to estrogen and testosterone because like you mentioned, you know, like the concept of using statins, statins lower testosterone levels and testosterone is a necessary hormone. And, and recognizing that, it's always, it's so important. So many patients would come in. I, I do want to emphasize this a little bit, Susan, because so many patients would come in on statin medications and other symptoms such as depression, you know, irregular cycle, no libido. And I would always ask them, why are you taking this? Well, because my cholesterol is high. And then I would ask, well, why is your cholesterol high? I don't know. Well, we need to know. Just like you said, is it, is it high because it's protecting your brain from heavy metal toxicity? Is it high because your thyroid's hypofunctioning? We have to ask these questions. If we are requiring any type of intervention, we need to understand why we're taking it. We cannot just give our power over our own body over to someone else. So I feel very strongly about that. I love the way you think. Uh, well, uh, Anna, we've got two minutes left. Is there any way you'd like to summarize this or tell people how to get a hold of you? And once again, her book is The Hormone Fix. She describes the symptoms of menopause and, uh, the, and through the cycles throughout life and what we can do to get on a very healthy path. So, Anna, what, how would you like to conclude? Yes, well, thank you for this opportunity. My website's dranna.com, so D-R-A-N-N-A.com. And I share, I'm really power, you know, I really want to empower the individual. So I have lots of education information, and certainly my book, The Hormone Fix, I include a 10-day quick start keto green detox diet as well as 21 additional menus and and questionnaires and, and strategies and pearls that are in there that are really empowering. So whether you're a man or woman, whether you're way before menopause or way after, this is helpful to each and every one of you. And the more empowered you are, the healthier your family is, the healthier your relationships are, the more enjoyment, joy, fun, and energy that you have in your life. So interact with me. I'm on social media at Facebook at Dr. Anna C. I have a Keto Green community on Facebook that's really active and lively, as well as I'm on Instagram. So be sure to reach out to me and happy to help. Oh, I love all this material because, you know, the keto or paleo diet is certainly a way to go. Getting all the greens in is so important. Eating natural, eating organic, hugely important. So uh, to the listeners, I advise that you go check out her book and study some of these topics, uh, research other 
issues and other things as you can. So you can help yourselves. You can help each other. Share it with your clinician, your physician. And above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.